Welcome to AACS Today, the official podcast of the American Association of Christian Schools. Thank you for joining us on this episode of AACS Today. I am Matt Tiscus, your host for the podcast. I'm also the regional director for the Mid-South region of the AACS. This is part two of a podcast where we are tackling questions about opening again for the fall. So if you have not listened to part one, I want to encourage you to do that because it really uh, sets the stage uh, for the continuation. This is really just a continuation of what we were discussing last podcast. So just to bring you up to speed, we are using uh, two papers. One is an open letter to independent schools from Kennesaw State University. They present six questions in there, and we've we're walked through a few of those, and we're going to walk through the last couple in this podcast. And then also an open letter from Dr. Mark Beadle, who is the uh, founder of Seven Star Academy. He's also been a, a Christian educator for 35 years, and he's an adjunct professor at three different Christian universities. So they have uh, kind of set the stage for us, and we've used that as an outline for the podcast. And as we begin this podcast, though, uh, we did want to share with you a little bit about how, as an organization, we are pivoting as well, right? Your teachers, your schools have had to pivot and have had to do so very, very quickly. And as an organization, we have had to do that as well. So Dr. Walton, talk a little bit about that as we begin this podcast, because, you know, we need to be doing the same things that our schools are doing because we want to serve our schools well. So talk about how we've done that a little bit as an organization. Thanks, Matt. Well, if this were a spring, like every other spring that I've been the AACS executive director, we would uh, be uh, trying to recover from a week of national competition last week with more than 2,000 high school students on the campus at Bob Jones University for the national competition event. But about six weeks ago, uh, life changed for all of us. And uh, our schools went into online learning mode and made that rapid transition. And our staff had to think about how our spring was going to be different and how we would serve schools in different ways. The mission of the American Association of Christian Schools is to support the success of Christian school leaders and teachers by providing quality services that promote and protect Christian education. Uh, in a typical spring, the primary pieces of that are that national competition event, Iowa achievement testing, which uh, more than 500 of our schools are involved in, in a normal spring, and then more than a dozen accreditation team visits that typically occur in the spring. None of those things are happening this year. There's no travel. Uh, schools are not on campus, and so they're not testing. And so our staff had to think about how we uh, pivot also and support the success of Christian school leaders and teachers in different ways. Uh, one of those things was initially we set about recording some webinars that would benefit schools. So Dr. David Warren recorded some webinars for us about uh, using Google Classroom and G Suite for education. That's been really, really helpful to schools. We've had some follow-up webinars recorded related to that. Uh, Matt, you and I recorded a webinar about using Zoom 
and some other ideas about um, continuing education. I think in that same webinar, we talked about uh, tuition issues and whether or not schools should continue to charge tuition and how they had to prove value to their families. And our schools have done a really good job of that. Uh, one of the other new tools, though, that we started using is this tool, and it was your idea. And so I thank you for that. Uh, you contacted me and said, Dr. Walton, I think we should start doing a series of podcasts. Uh, and in those podcasts, we could address issues that schools are wrestling with right now. I believe this is the 12th or 13th podcast in that series now. And in that series of podcasts, uh, Jameson Coppola, our legislative director, has been a guest uh, at least three times, and you've recorded podcasts about the CARES Act and the Paycheck Protection Program and the other issues that school leaders are wrestling with. Just yesterday, I believe, you recorded a podcast with uh, a couple of second grade teachers and an elementary school administrator and addressed what uh, is a continuing question today. Uh, online is working pretty well for our middle school and secondary, but we're still struggling a little bit with what works for the little kids, the kindergartners and first and second graders and third graders. And so yesterday's podcast addressed that issue. And so uh, I wanna thank you for the idea. I think this will be something that continues for a long time with AACS. Uh, uh, probably not with as much frequency as we're recording podcasts right now, uh, but uh, this is part of the AACS pivot to serve and support Christian school leaders and teachers. Yeah, and we've learned something very important in these podcasts. I do not have a future in radio. That's number one. And number two, if you missed the podcast with the kindergarten through third graders, you need to check it out for the sole purpose of learning about the sparkly python. I'm not going to give much explanation about that, but our listeners really need to check it out because there's some good ideas around the concept of a sparkly python. I know that may sound strange, but trust me, you'll enjoy the story. Okay, so uh, thank you for those kind words. And uh, really our hope as an organization, again, as Dr. Walton stated, is just to support our schools, right? We want you to thrive, right? Right now, again, we've, we've said this before, we're in a little bit of survival mode and our schools have done an incredible job. I have heard such great feedback that our schools are getting from their families. And now we want to move from survival mode to thriving mode as we think about next year. So we tackled from the Kennesaw State paper uh, questions, I believe it was one, two, and six. And in this episode, we're going to look at the rest of the questions. And we're going to start with question number three. And I failed to introduce our, our panel on this podcast, which is Dr. Jeff Walton, who you just heard from, Executive Director of the AACS, and Ed Francis, who, who is the uh, uh, Education Director for the AACS. And Ed's going to answer this first question, and it's number three. And here's the question. Enrollment drops are likely, so what do we do for families who will have just a one-year liquidity problem? Ed, help us think through um, some of the financial, real financial issues and enrollment issues that our schools are going to face. Good to be a part of the podcast. And um, in answer to that question, especially the liquidity question, we'll look at that here in just a second. But the enrollment drops are, going, are likely. Uh, if the recession mirrors the recession of 2007, 
expect a 10% drop in enrollment. It could be more significant. Um, it could be less. If I'm planning today for next year, which most of our school leaders are putting budgets together and they're going to be voted on soon. So those are things that we have to seriously consider at this point. And that is how to financially plan for next year. And I would plan for a 10% decline um, in enrollment. That could put you at a safe place. As a school, you may have a better feel for what that decline would look like in your school budget for enrollment. So it could vary. Um, but um, statistically, it, it, with the recession of 2007, most schools um, experience a 10% drop in enrollment. Uh, the Kennesaw State letter expanded the enrollment issue with the question, what will we do for our families who have a one-year liquidity problem? And that's something to, to really consider because some of these families are great families. They have kids that add value to our school because uh, they come from strong Christian homes and they're good character kids. So we don't want to lose um, the opportunities that we have to educate these students. Um, and if it's just a one-year situation that they're going through, uh, we can do things that perhaps could keep them connected in a part of our school program, but we have to think about it. And that's important for the school task force to know who these families are. Uh, take the enrollment list and begin to make some phone calls, but find out who these families are that are going to have a situation, a financial situation that could inhibit them enrolling in the school this next year. And Ed, um, let me let me interrupt you for just a second. Uh, Ed just referenced the task force again. That's that's um, thinking about the first podcast we did around this topic. So if you missed that, that was one of our recommendations: is that you put a task force together to kind of tackle this issue. So Ed, sorry to interrupt, but carry, but take it from there. But this task force not only needs to identify who these families are, but they need to intentionally pursue them and pursue them with a plan to carry them through this financial hardship. Um, this will mean budget adjustments. So there's going to be budget adjustments that are going to have to take place in reshaping the budget. We're not going to look the same as it did in the prior years, but also new strategies will have to be considered. Um, some ideas could be maybe a new expense line for COVID-19 tuition assistance. Um, ask businesses for tuition donations, especially business owners within the school community or church family. Um, ask financially stable school families for a one-year financial gift to go toward helping a family to pay for their child's tuition. Um, I think some of these ideas are realistic ideas. Um, people are looking for places to donate, especially when there's a need. Um, and people have a burden for Christian education. This is a way to participate if they're financially able to during this time to help keep families in school um, that are struggling with this hardship for this next year. Um, it's important for our schools to stay financially solvent. And to do so with declining enrollment takes a lot of smart planning. So there's going to be budget adjustments. New strategies are going to have to be considered as we go into this next year. As a previous school administrator, I always believe that God would not give us a circumstance that we could not manage as long as our sufficiency was found in him and not in us. 
Um, he was more than our circumstance. And in this case, he is more than our circumstance. Uh, but we need to prayerfully and thoughtfully uh, think through the financial issues um, this next year. Related to that, uh, I wanted to comment on a, an effort that is happening right now as we record this podcast, both nationally and at the state level. Uh, a part of the CARES Act uh, provided to state governors some discretionary funds. I believe the, the total amount is about $3 billion that will be divided among states based on population. And, and governors have a great deal of discretion in the way those funds are used to support education. Uh, they, they must be used to support education, both public and private education. And one of the efforts happening right now is an effort to encourage governors to earmark some of those funds for supporting short-term scholarships for private schools. Uh, if the 2007 data that Ed mentioned holds up for the next fall and 10% of private school students leave private schools and go to public schools, the impact on state budgets is really, really significant. And so there's an effort happening right now to encourage state governors to use some of that discretion that they have with CARES Act funds to uh, fund scholarships through scholarship granting organizations, already existing groups, or maybe directly in, in new mechanisms. Uh, you know that, and so I encourage school leaders to be a part of supporting that effort that may be some help to them in addition to the scholarship mechanisms uh, that schools have internally that Ed has already talked about. It will be really important to keep those kids enrolled in your school uh, when their families have a, a temporary issue with liquidity and the ability to pay tuition. And Ed also mentioned seeking some tuition assistance in your community. Um, there is an additional $300 above the line option for donations um, that was part of some of the recent legislation that has passed. And we did, we have referenced that in some of our previous podcasts with Jamison Coppola, as we talk about um, some of this legislation, the, the pay paycheck protection program and some of the other pieces that have, that have passed uh, along with the CARES Act. So check those out, learn about those, but it's key. I think when we're thinking about, you know, asking potentially for funds, you know, folks that you have relationships with already, are going to be the best folks to seek out in these moments. So that's some that's some good thinking, uh, Ed. Some good thoughts about what do we do for these families that maybe just have a one year uh, problem. But Dr. Walden, I want to I want to come back to you with this question, and it's question number four on the Kennesaw State paper. Do we need to implement a temporary reduction in compensation for the next academic year? Right, and I want to answer that by saying maybe, but I sure hope not. Uh, I think that it would be short-sighted to react to these circumstances by first thinking about reducing compensation for teachers. Uh, I think a better idea is for your task force to think about how you meet the new financial realities without a reduction in compensation. Teachers are already uh, paid significantly lower salaries 
than the families that they serve in most of our schools. Uh, and to take this crisis and place it on the back of Christian school teachers who are already significantly underpaid, I think would be a mistaken approach to dealing with this. Uh, instead, uh, I would suggest that your task force think in opposite terms. How can we strategically use this circumstance as part of a five-year plan to move our teachers to a better compensation level? I had an interesting uh, visit uh, for accreditation last fall at a school where I had served on the team five years before. When I served on the team five years before, that school had, they were in the early stages of a program to bring their teaching staff to a pay scale that put them at 80% of the pay scale for public schools in their county. Uh, today, when we were there last fall, they are there. Uh, they pay their Christian school teachers uh, approximately 80% of what that teacher would get paid at a public school in their county. That's unusual in our schools, where often the number is closer to 40%, uh, sometimes even less than that. And so I think that the approach for your task force should not be to start by thinking about reducing compensation. Um, as, as a last resort, you might end up there, but it should be the last resort. Instead, your task force needs to think strategically about reshaping the organization in better ways that allow you not, not just to maintain current compensation, but to increase it over the next five years. Uh, in Dr. Beadle's letter, he, uh, used a, a quote from Winston Churchill that I've heard used by a number of people uh, in our current circumstances. And that quote from Churchill is, never waste a good crisis. Uh, that is uh, more than just a clever quotation. Leaders need to think about crises in those terms. A crisis is an opportunity to reshape, restructure, and strengthen the organization that I work with. I'll give you a quick illustration of that. On top of uh, all the other interesting crises that we're facing right now in the American Association of Christian Schools, uh, we live in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And on Easter Sunday night, uh, a really significant tornado tore through the eastern part of Chattanooga. Uh, three of our staff uh, families had homes that were affected by that. None of us had severe damage to our homes, but we all lived through that experience, uh, uh, hunkering down at various places in our homes for safety. But the AACS has been building a new building that is right at the epicenter of the tornado in eastern Chattanooga. Uh, that building was about 85% complete, and uh, the front entrance of the building was torn off by the tornado, and then the entire building was racked about four degrees off vertical. 
The insurance company has sent two engineers to do an evaluation. We've, we've yet to get a, a final determination from the insurance company, but both engineers are recommending that that building be taken all the way down to the pad and started again. Um, that's discouraging, but as a leadership team, we're also looking at that and saying, all right, we have an opportunity to rebuild. And as we rebuild, um, what do we want it to look like? Uh, is it going to be a little bit different? There are some changes that we're going to make structurally. There's some changes we hadn't even finished it, and there were some things we decided we didn't really like about it. And so this gives us an opportunity. Never waste a good crisis. Uh, that is not as significant as the crisis that you're facing in your school right now, looking ahead to next year. But you need that mindset. Uh, this is not just a difficulty to struggle through, but this is an opportunity to think about how we structure and shape our school and our educational program and serve the people that are part of it. That is a great illustration for us to think about in, in the midst of the difficulty that we're experiencing. And, and as you said, it pales in comparison to the difficulties that our, that our schools are facing. But, but what a great picture for us to consider that and to describe that for us. Let's talk about the last question then on the Kennesaw State paper. Dr. Walton, you mentioned uh, teachers and teacher salaries. And one of the things we need to be thinking about is how can we make our work environment better for our teachers and staff when they and their children will be toggling between school, home, school, and home. I mean, one of the teachers that we interviewed yesterday uh, shared with us that she has five children. And that is a real challenge when she's trying to uh, teach and also care for her family at the same time. So well, what, what does that look like? What recommendations would you make? Your task force needs to give some serious thought to how we make these circumstances work in better ways for our teachers when we're required to do this next year. This year, we just said, help us. Uh, we said, give up your spring break, get ready to move online. That's what happened at most of our schools. Teachers gave up their spring break. They did some training. They got ready to move their classes online. We said, give up your family time because your own kids are at home, but you need to be teaching. And we asked a lot of our teachers in this crisis. And again, and again, they stepped up to that challenge. And they gave us the, the time that, that we asked for. They created uh, online lessons. They learned new things. This successful transition for most of our schools is due mostly to the willingness of teachers to work harder than they've ever worked to make it happen. They're willing to do that. They love their kids. They love their school. They're willing to make that sacrifice but we shouldn't ask the same thing of them again next year. And so our task forces need to think about how we make things better for them. Uh, is there a way uh, for us to help with the care and the education of their children while they are teaching our classes? Are there mechanisms that we can put in place? Now, a lot of that's going to depend on uh, the orders in your community, whether they're stay-at-home orders. Uh, but a lot of the, the 
burden on teachers can be alleviated by more advanced planning. Uh, so we've got some time now through the summer. What do we put in place so that when we have to move to online, when we have to toggle to stay at home and teach online, we've already got the pieces in place so that teachers can do that in easier ways. I want to talk for just a minute about the importance of teachers to the success of this online learning. Uh, and I'm going to share a quick story, and then, Matt, I'm going to ask you to comment on a story that was shared yesterday. My story is this. Uh, the night before last, I drove into my driveway at about 6.30 in the evening, and uh, next door to me is a family with three young kids, including seven-year-old twins. And Bo and Grace were out riding their bicycles around the cul-de-sac when I pulled into my driveway and opened the door of my truck, and Bo pulled his bicycle right up next to my truck, and he said, Mr. Jeff, guess what happened today? And I said, Bo, I have no idea what happened today. And he said, my teacher came to see me. And he was so excited that his teacher, I said, did she get out of the, uh, of the car and come visit? No, she had to stay in her car. I said, did she bring you some, some schoolwork? And he said, no, she just came to tell me that she loved me and she cared about me and she was here to check up on me. Uh, he was so excited about that. I guarantee Bo's mom will remember that for a long, long time. Uh, teachers are making the effort today to establish the relationships for long-term success. And we need to do what we can do to think about making things better for them next year when we have to do this toddling back and forth. Share the story that came from yesterday's podcast, Matt. Yeah, so uh, where I live in Texas, close to Fort Worth, um, it's actually the school where my kids go. Um, they turned one of their school and church vans into an ice cream truck. And so they rigged up a freezer. Uh, they went and bought some specialty ice cream, the, the Tweety Bird and the Sonic the Hedgehog ice cream. And there was about 10 or 12 options. And they mapped out a plan to visit um, about 140 families uh, in our school family coming straight up to your door, knocking on the door, inviting the whole family out to pick some ice cream. It came included with music, you know, that wonderful music with an ice cream truck that's normally there. And uh, it was just a great opportunity to connect. And uh, one of our folks on the admin team shared how they got to see where their students live. They got to pray with them and just, again, couldn't get too close, but you have some some face-to-face -face contact and how important that is. And it means so much. And our teachers and school leaders have done such a great job. And the teacher involvement is so very important. We can't underscore that enough. And and there has been so much positive feedback from um, our our admin team and our teachers delivering that ice cream uh, that 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 will not soon be forgotten. I can I can guarantee you that much. So uh, let's continue on though to shifting gears just a little bit as we go back to Dr. Beadle's paper. We've actually covered all the questions on the Kennesaw State paper. We have just one or two more that we're going to tackle on Dr. Beadle's. Uh, paper. And that's number five in part one, which has to do with this. Do you need to maintain the typical calendar or school day? Dr. Walton, what would you say about that? This would be a frequently asked question that we've received also. Uh, 
And there's not an easy answer to this or a simple answer to this. You will have to pay a lot of attention to state guidance. Uh, in most of our states, students in private Christian schools are subject to compulsory attendance laws. And those compulsory attendance laws in many states uh, identify the number of days and hours sometimes days or hours that schools are required or that, that children are required to be in attendance at private schools. Uh, so you will have to pay a lot of attention to, to local guidance. Uh, you do want to uh, be compliant with those requirements, but most uh, state governments and local governments pretty quickly realized that flexibility was going to be required. And so if there are stay-at-home orders, then it is very likely that some flexibility will be provided for public schools and also for private schools. And if you're provided flexibility, then you need to think in terms of something that we discussed in yesterday's podcast, and that is think in terms of creating a learning experience that is equivalent to the on-campus learning experience. Uh, this spring, because we had to do this quick pivot, uh, then we've essentially stripped down the learning experience just to the core things, the essential things. When you move to an online experience next year, where you're pivoting between on-campus and online, uh, you need to think in a little different terms about that because you've got more time to plan for it. Uh, Online will not be the same experience as on campus, but you need to make sure that it is academically equivalent to the on-campus experience, that it is as rigorous as the on-campus experience. Um, one of the things that was mentioned in the, the, the Kennesaw State paper was uh, that when, when you move to an at-home experience or an online experience, there are going to be some things that, uh, that students will need to do more of than they do in an on-campus experience. They will have to do more research projects. Uh, they will have to do more reading. Younger kids will have to have more reading done to them. They will have to do more writing on their own. They will be asked to discuss concepts with family members or in online group sessions. Uh, and uh, particularly when you're thinking about lower uh, elementary students, there's, there's more of a shift to um, more student um, reading. You don't have the opportunity for the teacher to provide as much direct classroom instruction. So more becomes dependent on student activities. Uh, you, you need to think about all of that in terms of creating an experience that is equivalent to the classroom experience in terms of the learning that takes place. I said this in, in our earlier podcast, when an accrediting agency looks at an online program versus an on-campus program, they they say to prove that your online program is accomplishing what it's supposed to, you have to document that students are learning in the online program an equivalent experience to what they would have on your on-campus program. Uh, 
assessments become more authentic. Uh, they become less about the paper and pencil tests. So the experience changes, but that's a helpful mindset. How am I creating online something that's equivalent to what was on campus? And let's finish with this question because as again, we're thinking towards next year, we need to be thinking about new students coming into our school. We need to be thinking about students who maybe didn't take full advantage of some of the the resources and opportunities that were given to them uh, through this uh, distance learning portal. Maybe they struggled with that. And so uh, on Dr. Beadle's paper, number 10 in part one, how will teachers assess the starting place academically of their students? What guidelines will they be given that change the physical and academic plans they have made in the past? Ed, would you comment on a couple thoughts or ideas uh, related to that for our listeners? Yes, Matt, this certainly is, uh, so teachers are planning to start the new academic school year and putting their lesson plans together and scope and sequence with curriculum and where do we um, get into the program in the new year, considering that the students were out of school a full quarter, full quarter and a half the year before. Um, the issues with returning students and or new students may be a little different because the students that are returning to your school, um, you kind of have a feel for where they are academically and where you left off with them and then transfer students um, are also going to be something that you're going to have to evaluate and get everybody together where you're starting um, a new year in the same place. And part of that's going to involve uh, assessments. Um, and where you can begin, especially with your uh, returning students, is looking at some of the assessments from their prior year and getting those organized and having a feel with where they are at, where the, where the teacher, the third grade teacher left off, and then now the fourth grade teacher will pick up. Uh, one of the uh, good things is, is that uh, we did miss a whole fourth quarter. There's a lot of things that happen other than just academics during the fourth quarter of a school year, um, but every year begins with review. Review will be heavier this year um, as we start, so uh, beginning with a plan to have heavy review, having a good idea of where the stu your students are academically with their concepts, and then proceeding with the, um, the new academic year. Yeah, and that's great. And especially, again, as we think about maybe a transfer student, a new student coming in, a, a student applying for the fourth grade, it may be good to look back at some of the, the fourth quarter assessments uh, for third grade math and just see where that student is. So I think those are some really practical ideas. But Dr. Walton, another idea uh, maybe surrounds some things we could do with some standardized achievement testing. Yeah, so I would uh, repeat what um, you and Ed have both said, and that if I'm trying to figure out where a kid fits in the curriculum that I use, the textbooks that, that I use at my school, a really easy place to start that is with some of the assessments from the prior year. So if I'm the fourth grade teacher, I might give a couple of the assessments from the fourth quarter of third grade math to just give me a practical look at where I should start. Um, Standardized achievement tests like the Iowa assessment answer a different set of questions than a teacher-produced or a publisher-produced test answers. A teacher-produced assessment or a publisher-produced assessment 
answers questions about to what degree students have mastered the content of this textbook. A nationally normed achievement test like the Iowa assessments uh, instead answer the question, how well have students mastered a body of content that is common to what students learn in third grade or fourth grade, whatever their grade level is, in a representative sample from around the country. So if I uh, have students take a nationally normed achievement test, I'm not learning from that how well they've mastered the content of my uh, publisher's textbook uh, or even of my teacher-designed classroom curriculum, but I am learning how well they stack up against what students commonly know and understand at their grade level. Uh, those are both important ideas. And one of the things that uh, AECS is uh, going to make available next fall to help school leaders and teachers make those measurements about where students stack up against the national norms uh, is we're going to make available a fall testing period for the Iowa assessments. Um, I think it's really significant that every year you get that measure of how a student is doing against national norms. If you miss a year, like is happening with most schools this year, then and you go all the way to the next spring before you you get that measurement, then you've gone a sixth of a child's academic career with no outside measurement of progress. And that can be a period of time, especially if a child is falling behind, that is really, really significant. Uh, one of the possibilities would be you get started with this academic year and you say, wow, you know, it, it's, a, it's a lot to give up the six hours that are required to do that testing earlier in the year. Uh, it would be possible just to give up two hours and do the math and the language arts, the, the reading, the English language arts section of the assessment. Uh, those are the two core areas. And with just a couple of hours of assessment, you could get that outside measure of student performance, uh, which helps to give you a baseline for measuring progress for that year, which also gives you, um, with the Iowa Data Manager, gives you some incredible tools for evaluating a student's uh, current standing and the progress that a student is able to make. You can break those down into very specific uh, content areas, understand academic strengths and weaknesses. And so in addition to the publisher's tests or the teacher-made tests that give you a picture of where a student stands in relation to your textbook or your curriculum, then I would suggest some fall testing, either using the whole battery or using the math and ELA sections to see how it, where a student stands at the beginning of next year related to some national norms. Details of the fall testing option are not available yet, but we will be making those available for schools in the very near future so that you can uh, plan and prepare appropriately. And that really brings us to the end of what we're going to discuss uh, from, from these two papers. I want to thank our panel, Dr. Jeff Walton and Ed Francis, for joining us to help us think through some of the big picture items. Uh, I can tell you that the paper from Dr. Beadle 
uh, tackles close to 20 different questions. We just got into about five or six of those off Dr. Beetle's paper. So please go to the show notes and get Dr. Beetle's paper entitled Reopening 2020. And also, if you've not yet gotten the Kennesaw State open letter, please do that because we want you to have those resources. And again, they will be available in the show notes. Thank you for listening to this, our first two-part podcast series on thinking about and planning for opening in the fall. We trust it's been a help and an encouragement and a blessing to you. And we look forward to seeing you next time on the next episode of AACS Today. God bless.